So we talked about how we're going to go. We go with expectation. We go with trust, prayer, confidence. And then we're going to look at verse 5 of Luke chapter 10 now. We're going to read verse 5 and 6. When you enter a house, first say, peace to this house. If someone who promotes peace is there, your peace will rest on them. If not, it will return to you. So we go with discernment. Everybody say discernment. <laughs> we need discernment. We need the discernment of the Spirit of God when we walk through our communities to lead us to the right people at the right time. When God is moving, when God is preparing. I've had so many moments of my life of just being in the right place at the right time. And it's nothing you can orchestrate. I walked into a village one time. Uh, this was about a 10-day walk up into the mountains. So when I say walk, we really walked. We've got tents and sleeping bags. We walk into the village, and we start preaching in the village. And as we're sharing, a young boy came up to me and grabbed me and said, uh, said uh, are you here telling stories about Jesus? I said, yes. And he said, my grandfather wants to meet you. So, so he drags me over to this house. And there's a man. He, he had to be in his 90s. He looked ancient. He had a yak skin wrapped around him, and he was sitting really close to a fire. You could tell he's at, he's at the end of life. And he's sitting there, and he never looked up. And I came and sat down. He never looked up, and he said, are you telling stories about Jesus? I said, yes, we're here telling stories about Jesus. He said, when I was a little boy, my father was in the British Army. This is when the British were still ruling. My father was in the British Army, and he had an officer who used to tell him stories about Jesus. He said, whenever my father had leave, he would come home and he would tell me the stories he had heard about Jesus. And then my father went and fought in the war and he died when I was a little boy. He said, my whole life, I've said the same prayer every day for over 80 years. If you're real, one day would you send your servant to tell me how I could follow you? He said, I'm almost at the end. I thought it would never happen. Tell me how I can follow Jesus a person of peace. We shared the gospel with him, shared what it means to follow Jesus. And you talk about baptism. He, he threw the yak skin off of him and he said, okay, take me and baptize me. I said, the river's frozen. I don't want to kill you. <laughs> so we sprinkled him by the fire. I hope that doesn't offend any of you. <laughs> person of peace. They're out there. What we need is is the discernment of the Spirit of God. When you sit in quiet moments, the purpose is to learn to be attuned to hear the voice of God. So that when you're on the train, when you're walking through the airport, when you're sitting in a taxi, when you're walking into a neighborhood, the right time, the right moment, God is leading you to the right people. I believe that there are people that God has prepared in every city, in every neighborhood, among every people, in every community, in this state, in this nation, and around the world. There are people whom God has prepared. And what we need is to be able to discern the Spirit of God, discern the voice of God, to be at the right place at the right time. And when you're at the right place at the right time, God moves. I walked into a village one day. I was heading to another village, and it started raining. 
and I'm soaking wet, and I come through the village, and I must have been loud and grumbling a lot. I don't know, you know, so I'm sure he heard me because I was upset. And I'm walking through the village thinking, man, I'm so cold. I don't want to be here. I, I really didn't want to be there that moment. But I'm heading up to a village because I promised them I would come and, and do a Bible study with them. So as I'm walking through this village on my way to the other village, a man steps out of his house, and he looks out, and he said, what are you doing out here in the rain? Come inside. And he pulls me inside of his house. A people who are created by God, created in his image, and there are parts of that that have been clouded, but there's still parts that seep through. And so this man calls me in his house. He has no furniture. He has a dirt floor. His kids are sitting around the fire. He moves his kids. He kicks them, actually. He kicks them away. He says, get out of the way. And so he moves his kids away. He sits me right next to the fire, and he starts making tea for me. And he said, what in the world are you doing out in the hills here walking, and it's cold, and you're in the rain. You shouldn't be out here. And I said, well, there's a, there's a family in the next village, and I promised that I would come and tell them stories of Jesus. And he almost dropped the tea. He said, you know Jesus? He said, I used to have his book. <laughs> he said, years ago I was in the town, and somebody handed me his book, and I used to read the stories, and then somebody stole the book. He said, I've always wanted to hear more of his stories, and so I just start telling him about Jesus. And as we're sitting around the fire, and we're telling him stories, and, and he's listening, and he's getting intrigued, and we start telling of Jesus' healing and his miracles. And he said, does he still do that today? I said, he does. He said, will he do it to my wife? And I hadn't even seen her. All there is is the light of the fire. We're in the dark. There's just the light of the fire. And, and I see, I, I thought it was just, just uh, blankets thrown into the corner, and his wife was curled up in a ball in the corner, wrapped up in blankets. He said, my wife hasn't moved in weeks. I don't think she's going to make it. He said, but, but do you think Jesus could heal my, my wife? I said, I do. I believe he can. So we go and gather around, and we start to pray in the name of Jesus over his wife. I told him, I said, listen, I, I promised them I was going to be in the village. I've got to go up, but uh, they actually have an extra Bible. I'll bring you a Bible tomorrow. I'll give you his book again tomorrow. So I run back out in the rain, run up the hill. We sit up all night doing a Bible study. The next morning I get up, I get a Bible from him. I come back down the hill, and as I walk into the village, he's standing there, and he pulls his wife out, and she starts to wave, and he said, he did it. Jesus healed my wife. And they became the first followers in that village. The whole, whole family turned to the Lord. There, there are people out there. They're there. There are people God has prepared. We can get so caught up in rejection that we fail to discern that there are people who are ready. There are people who are ready. There are hearts that are prepared. Today is the day of salvation for somebody in your city. Today is the day of salvation for somebody in your state. Maybe not everybody's ready, but somebody's ready, and we have to have the Spirit of God moving and living in us. And how are we going to discern that voice? By sitting with Jesus. That's why it's so important to start your day in the presence of Jesus. Start your day listening and, and, and recalibrating yourself. You know, it's like every time you, you go to play, you've got to make sure the guitar is in tune, right? It just has a way of going out of tune. And... Uh, that's how our lives are. You know, the phone call that you get puts your voice out of tune. The board member puts your life out of tune. The counseling session puts your life out of tune. The bill collector puts your life out of tune. 
when you start thinking about the, uh, this uh, mortgage that's been rolling over, it's finally coming due, and, and your life gets out of tune. And that's why every day we need to start our day recalibrating, sitting with Jesus, refocusing with Jesus so that we don't miss the opportunities of the day. Every day can be a day of miracles if we're in alignment with the Lord. Every day. Now, here's the challenge, and I struggle sometimes with sharing my story. All I'm doing is just sharing the story of what God has done. But, but I fear what you can hear in it is that every day is exciting. You know, I heard somebody describe the life of a soldier once is months and years of tedious boredom interrupted by moments of terror. <laughs> you know, sometimes we read the book of Acts and we think, man, we, we need a church like that. And most of you do have a church like that. Because what the book of Acts was written for was a highlight history. There are years, actually, I was reading a scholar recently, and there's a gap of six years of Paul's life in the book of Acts. You know why there was a gap of six years? Nothing happened. <laughs> he went and nobody listened, nobody got healed, there were no miracles, there was nothing. Then all of a sudden there's a, there's a miracle, and hey, let's write about that. And so all you're getting is the highlights of 30 years of ministry. And, and I believe most of you, if I were to sit you down and say, give me your highlights of the last 30 years of ministry, a lot of you would be able to have a book of Acts. And when somebody reads it, you would say, you know, this really doesn't sound like my life. And that's why discernment is so important because there is the tedium that can cause us to lose focus that we miss the moment when there could be a miracle. And that's why it's so important that every day, even when you don't feel like it, you wake up and you retune your mind with the Word of God. You refocus yourself on God and say, God, I don't want to miss the opportunity because today may be the day that the dead are raised. And I want to be ready for it. Today may be the day when you do a miracle, and I want to be ready for it. I could tell you at least a dozen stories of impossible miracles God has done, but he's done it over 30 years. <laughs> so if you do the math, there was a whole lot of years when not much is happening. <laughs> and some of those miracles happened in clusters where I had a glorious month. And then all of a sudden, the rails go off. I had one month where I walked into a village, a man who couldn't move his arm. God healed his arm in front of us. People watching, he lifted his arm up. The whole village went crazy. Walked into another village, and, and the next day, the whole village had fever. We prayed. The whole village was healed in one day. A whole village was healed. Two days later, I was in prison. <laughs> yeah. A lot of miracles and then uh, dark days, weeks and months of dark days. That's how life goes. But that's why you need the discernment of the Spirit to hear the voice of God, to take hold of the moments that God gives you. There may only be 
10 or 15 moments of miracles that God has planned for your life. Don't miss one of them. Don't miss one of them. Be ready for your moment. Be ready for your miracle. God wants to do great things. Go with discernment. Number six. We go with expectation. We go with prayer, with confidence, with trust, with discernment. Verse seven. Stay there, eating and drinking whatever they give you, for the worker deserves his wages. Do not move around from house to house. Luke chapter 9 and verse 4, when he was speaking to the 12, Jesus said, whatever house you enter, stay there until you leave that town. You see, here was the problem. You see, as a disciple, I walk into a town, and traditionally, it's the poor who are the most generous. How many of you know that's true? Traditionally, it's the poor who are the most hospitable. So I'm a disciple, and I walk into town, and this poor family invites me into their home. And they say, we don't have much, and uh, we just have a little mat on the floor, and uh, we don't have much, we, we don't even have meat, we just have vegetables and a little rice, and uh, come and stay in our house. And I come into the house, and God's blessings follow. And now another family comes along and says, why are you staying with that poor family? Come stay at our house, we actually have a bed, and we have meat to eat. Come and stay with us. And what do I say? Praise the Lord. God is so good. And so I move houses. Then God starts to bless that house. And then a richer family says, why are you staying in that house? We have a room for you. And we have AC in the room. <laughs> and then we have meat every meal. Come stay with us. Praise the Lord. God is providing. If we're not careful, we find ourselves chasing opportunities instead of chasing after Christ. Isn't it amazing that if a church offering you double a salary calls, you're going to spend some time praying about it? But if the church that calls and says, you may have to get a part-time job at Walmart, if they call, I, I, I hear the Lord pretty quickly on that one. Right? Because surely... God wants me to have more opportunities, not less. If we're not careful, we find ourselves chasing comfort, chasing convenience, chasing success, chasing opportunities instead of chasing after the Lord. And if you do, you're going to miss your miracles. You're going to miss your miracles. Our brother... Where yet flood floodway, five hundred people. Be easy if the church in the Twin Cities call. Wow, what an opportunity! Yeah, better schools for my kids, better opportunities for my family. Go with contentment. Contentment. I want to challenge you today. Learn the secret of contentment. And you know what contentment is? Contentment means wherever the Lord puts me, whatever I have, whatever I'm going through, it's always enough because I'm with Jesus. 
And if my salary is small or if my salary is big, if my, if my package is good or bad, if my town is small or little, if the church is growing, not growing, none of that affects me. I'm content because I know I'm with Jesus. I'm content because I'm walking with the Lord. There's not a lot of amens on this one, is there? Because all of us would like to have a little bit better opportunity. You know, I, I, I'm glad that my opportunities didn't come till much later in life. Because uh, I probably would have chased them earlier in life. But it helps when uh, where I lived for my first 15 years, and it was a 30-minute walk to the closest payphone. Uh, you don't get many calls there. <laughs> And so, so I just kind of lived my life and did my thing and just like there were no opportunities, so I was okay. I was protected by the Lord to be in a place. They actually had a boy who sat at the phone booth, and his job was like I would tell my mom, hey, if you ever need me, call and just say my name. And uh, she'd call, I'd say, and then you call back an hour later. So she'd call, say my name, and he'd come running at my house at 3 o'clock in the morning, knocking on the door, phone, 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 and I'd go running back up there, and I'd get the phone. So you don't get a lot of calls for upward mobility when you're living like that. So I was shielded from that. But now, you know, I'm getting to a place in life. Uh, I've got a special needs son. We're trying to get him settled in. And, uh, and uh, it'd be a lot easier to live in America now. It'd be a lot easier. And so uh, what do you think happens? I start getting opportunities. I got a call in May. A really good church. And I don't know if this is how churches do it or if they just did it to me. Maybe, but it sounded so strange to my ears. The church called me and said, hey, you know, we've got this opportunity, senior pastor, and here's the salary package. And I was thought, salary package? But we have to be so careful because we live in a world where pools are real things. Kids are going to college, and now, man, a, a better opportunity would help do that. My daughter's getting married. Better opportunities would help pay for that we got to retire better opportunities are going to help with that we live in a real world and if we are not living in the reality and saying this is the reality God help me to learn the secret of contentment and let me tell you a secret is a contentment it is a is a contentment is a secret that doesn't come naturally to humans our natural state is competitiveness our natural state is a driving for more, to pull for more. That's the natural sin nature that lives in all of us. Contentment doesn't come naturally. Philippians chapter 4 and verse 10, Paul said, I rejoiced. You renewed your concern. Verse 11, I'm not saying this because I'm in need, for I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. Verse 12, I know what it is to be in need. Paul said, I know what it is to be stoned to death. I know what it is to be in prison. I know what it is to be chased and hunted. I know what it is. You know, Paul describes one time all of these things, you know, beaten with iron rods, beaten with whips, thrown into prison, shipwrecked, all these things he's going. He said, I know what it is to be in need. For I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I have learned the secret of contentment. 
And do you realize today the only reason that we have all of these wonderful books of the Bible that I was reading for you now is because Paul learned the secret of contentment. I mean, Paul was a hard driver. He was a worker. It would have been easy for Paul to sit chafing in prison. Got to get out here. I got to get back to work. There's stuff for me to do. I can't be sitting here. But Paul, when he was out, he was a worker. He was driven. When he was inside, he could take a deep breath and say, well, I guess you don't want me to work right now. That's okay. Paul's identity wasn't in his work. It was in his relationship with Christ. He was content. And because he was content, he could hear the voice of God sitting in a prison cell. Because he was content when he was out, he could preach the word of God and see miracles. Because he was content, he could sit with one family and share the word of God with them. Or he could sit with an auditorium and share the word of God with them. He was content whatever the circumstance. His contentment was in his relationship with the Lord, not the work that he was doing. And I want to encourage you, learn this secret. Wherever you are today, until the day God releases you, be content where you are with what the Lord has given you. If you're a youth pastor with 10 little youth in your church and, and you don't have much to do, learn to be content with that. Don't be chafing for a bigger opportunity. Just go out and work harder where you are. You just pray, seek the Lord, do what the Lord has given you, and then if the Lord gives you something else, be content with that. Man, I love the idea of Philip the evangelist. Can you imagine? Philip, in our day, would have been the guy we were all talking about. Man, what happened to Philip? I mean, Philip was used, man. He was the evangelist that went into Samaria and preached the gospel. I mean, literally a whole city gets saved. And from this citywide crusade, he goes out in the desert and preaches to one family. And then he's just gone. And years later, Paul is traveling and they come to the house of Philip the evangelist with his two daughters who prophesy. He just became a family man. Raised some good daughters. God put him in a city, and he stayed there. And we would have said, man, what happened to Philip? What happened to Philip? He was so successful. We thought Philip was going to do great things. Man, he was on the trajectory. Church was growing, doing revivals. And now, what is Philip doing in the city? Apparently, by the looks of his family, he was just still following the voice of Jesus. And I want to encourage you guys, learn the secret of contentment. Don't chafe for more opportunity. Take hold of what's before you. You will never fully give yourself to what's before you if you're looking to the horizon for what comes next. If you're in a city of 500, you give your heart, soul, mind, and strength to that city to the day God moves you. And if he doesn't move you, you give it till you die. And you rejoice in the Lord that God gave you the opportunity to serve him. Don't chafe for more opportunities. Be content. I can tell you as, you know, as somebody who gets to travel a lot, I, I go to a whole lot of cities where obviously there was a discontented minister. Because somebody came in there and they built up something big. They got a better opportunity and left it behind 
and chaos was left in its wake. Be content. Because when the Lord moves, He doesn't leave chaos behind. If the Lord is moving you, there will be a good plan for what's left behind. God always thinks it through, not just of what you're doing. God also thinks what you're leaving behind. God always has a good plan if we're walking in contentment with Him. Amen? Number seven, we'll get back to fun things. Verse eight, when you enter a town and are welcomed, eat what is offered to you. How many of you are ready for 445? To eat what is offered to you. So we not only have to go with contentment, but we need to go with an appetite. Go with an appetite. John 1, 14. The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. We have seen His glory the glory of the one and only Son who came from God, full of grace and truth. You know, words are usually things we hear. Words are things we speak. Words are things we read. Words are not usually things we touch. But when God came to reveal Himself to us, He didn't come in the form of a book. He didn't come in the form of a voice. He came in flesh and blood. The Word lived out, fleshed out in our midst. In the Message Bible, this verse is translated like this. The Word became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. <laughs> I love that. The Word became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. I love what Pastor Clarence shared with us. What did you say, 20 hours a week? So notice, first of all, that's a 60-hour work week. We need to work harder. <laughs> so that's number one. We need to work harder. 20 hours with the Lord? 20 hours with the business of the church, 20 hours with the lost. And I don't know about you, but in my current role as an area director, that's, that's the hard part. Can somebody say amen? Because uh, business, I've always got more than 20 hours a week of business. Every morning I wake up to about 30 emails. <laughs> Somebody's in crisis. Somebody's having a challenge. Somebody needs some advice. I, I, I can do my 20 hours of business, no problem, every week. 20 hours of prayer, preparation, seeking the Lord. I have to be a little bit more intentional about that. But the farther you go in ministry, you will find the farther you get away from those you're called to reach. And we can find ourselves so immersed in the work of the Lord, in the business of the Lord, that we don't spend a moment with those who don't know Jesus. Yes, and we don't leave the best to last. 
you know, we ask a question. We have, like I said, we uh, five days a week on our teams, we meet and we pray. We start the day with prayer, and then we have a team meeting every week. And I ask the same question in the team meeting every week. Tell me a story. You never ask for yes or no answers. I don't ask, did you spend time with the lost this week? I ask, tell me a story about a lost person you had a meal with this week. That's my question to the team every week. Tell me a story about a lost person you had a meal with this week. That's how we measure success. Are you spending time with the lost? Not, who did you witness to? Not, did you get to pray the sinner's prayer? But did you actually spend quality time with lost people this week? Tell me a story. So we make that a part of our DNA. I don't know if you realize this, but the overwhelming majority of the miracles of Jesus recorded for us in the book of Luke have something to do with a meal. It has something to do with food, sitting around a table. Jesus did his best work around the table. The kingdom, the gospel doesn't need more pulpits. The gospel needs more tables. The best communication you can have with somebody is not talking out to them, it's sitting around with them. And they can ask questions and we can dialogue and there's trust around the table. Families sit around the table together. We, we as a people, if we're going to go, we are called to go to be with the lost. Our time with the church is simply meant to be a preparation for them to go with the lost. But we can't challenge them to do what we ourselves do not actively model. If we ourselves are not actively communicating with the lost around us, then we're failing at our mission. Man, I, I can't tell you how blessed I am. I have the most hospitable, beautiful wife in the world. I know you think yours is, but just because you don't know mine yet. But my wife is the most hospitable human being I've ever met in the world. 10, 15 people every day come to our house and eat. And there's always enough food. We have Thanksgiving every year at our house. We average 150 people at our house. My wife cooks all the food. We went through three years that we did not have a night, that we did not have guests staying at our house. Just people are always there. My wife has always welcomed me in. Because that's what you do. The gospel is a welcome to the world. Jesus modeled for us what it means. When Jesus was making his first disciples, this is how the first disciples were made, not with miracles. The first disciples were made because one day Jesus is walking along. John's talking to two of his disciples. He looks up, says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And these disciples are following John and think, Well, if, if he's the Lamb of God, why are we following this guy? So they turn around and start following Jesus. And I don't know if you've ever had one of those moments where you know somebody's following you. So I guess Jesus is walking and, you know, he starts looking over his shoulder. There's these two guys there. So finally Jesus stops and turns and says, What are you looking for? Why are you following me? And here's their question. Jesus, where do you live? What a profound question. Where do you live? It's not tell us if you're really the son of God. See, they had been there when Jesus was baptized. They heard the voice of heaven. They've heard John, their master, saying this is the Messiah. What they're saying is, 
we've heard it for ourselves. We've heard our teacher tell us it's true. But, but before we follow you, I need to see how you treat your mom. I need to see what your family looks like. I need to see how you live in your neighborhood. I need to see what this, because a lot of people say a lot of things and their lives don't match it. So I need to see what this looks like in real life. And the response of Jesus is the opposite of how we usually respond. Our response to the lost usually begins with the word go. You want to know Jesus? Hey, you should go to our church on Sunday. You want to know Jesus? Hey, I got a great book. You should go read this book. You want to know Jesus? Man, I know of a great podcast. You should go listen to this podcast. You want to know Jesus? Hey, we got a small group. You should go to this small group. But the answers of Jesus didn't start with go. The answers of Jesus started with come. Come and see. Come into my house. Come into my life. Jesus didn't invite him to the synagogue. He invited him to his house. Come and see. And here's the amazing thing. Andrew comes and spends one day in the house of Jesus. That afternoon, he goes to find his brother. And he said, Simon, well, I have found the Messiah. One day in the house of Jesus changed his life. One day. And that's what we're called to do, to invite the lost into our space to encounter Christ. That's what John said, 1 John 1, 3. He said, and we have fellowship with the Son, and now we invite you into fellowship with us. Why? Because Christ is in us. And when you have fellowship with us, you are coming into direct contact with the Son of God. Come and have fellowship. I love N.T. Wright said, uh, here's the gospel in a nutshell. Three phrases. Number one, I love you. Jesus came to this earth. Number two, I forgive you. Jesus gave his life. And number three, dinner's ready. That's the gospel. That's the whole gospel. Jesus came to this earth. He died, and now he has prepared a supper for us. Come to the master's table. Come and taste and see how good the Lord is. Come and experience him. Listen, I'm not telling you to do away with the programs of your church, but what I'm telling you is this. The most effective way to reach those farthest from the gospel is in personal relationship with them. Most Somalis are not going to come to your church, but they might come to your house. Most atheists, they're, they're not going to accept your invitation to the Easter play, but they may accept an invitation to brisket if it's good enough. And we have to be a people that invite the lost into our space so they can encounter the glory of Christ. And we as people of the Spirit who are walking with Christ, Christ is with us everywhere we go. We take His presence with us. We are inviting people into His presence. My mentor went back to the UK during World War II, fought in World War II, and then came back, spent his whole life there. He died in his 90s. And near the end, he had uh, dementia, and so he was very forgetful. And so for about 10 years, he every night told me the same Bible verse every night as if I'd never heard it. He'd say, Joe, let me tell you what I've been thinking about. And he was in a loop, so he just was thinking about the same thing every night. He said, let me read this scripture to you. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 8. So we cared for you, 
Because we loved you so much, we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well. I heard this almost every day for 10 years. He said, sharing the gospel, that's easy. Sharing your life, that's the hard part. That's the hard part. We need to be the kind of people who live open lives with lost around us. That our life should be a welcome to the world. That we are called to intersect our lives with those who need Jesus the most. We are called to raise up the people that we, that we lead to be the kind of people who want to help people to intersect Jesus at every point. The challenge we have today, we are so consumed with the safety of our believers that we don't challenge them to do dangerous things. Let me tell you, the safe thing to do with a new believer is just say, hey, come over here and stay with us. And what we do when we do that is we save the one and we lose the many. So I always tell our new disciples, we have new disciples, they're coming to the Lord and, and they've got to go home and every morning idols are being worshipped in their house. Every morning they're being pulled into the altar room. Every day they have this challenge on their lives. And many times they say, you know, I just want to leave. And I always say to them, no matter what happens, you can't leave. You are the first fruits. God loves your family so much that he revealed the gospel to you so that you could be the first fruit of your family coming to Christ. Jesus didn't abandon you. You can't abandon your family. I know it's hard. We're going to be here for you. That's why we pray together every day because we have people who have to go face these challenges every day. So we pray together every day. We tell them every day, hey, if you're struggling, come on over to the house. We'll pray for you again. Come over for dinner. Come over for lunch. Anytime you're struggling, we're here for you. But don't leave. Don't leave. Stay in the battle. Stay in the fight. We believe that God loves your family. God wants to see your family coming to faith. We have to be a people that we are constantly encouraging new disciples. No, we, we don't want a people who say the sinner's prayer and show up. We want a people who are deeply committed to Christ and his work and his kingdom. And that means a people who do dangerous things. And I believe this. The God who is able to save us is the God who is able to keep us. And the most dangerous thing I can do for a new disciple is to teach them to be cautious about the devil. I don't want them to learn to be cautious about the devil. I want them to know who they are in Christ from day one. Yeah, I want you to know from day one that no power, no authority can touch you. You don't have to worry about the idols in your house any longer because the power of Christ lives in you. You can call on the name of Jesus in any moment. He is with you. Do not fear what darkness will bring. Stand firm in the light of Christ and he'll use you. We need to raise up a generation who views it as their destiny, as their purpose to live out the light of Christ in dark places. You know, lights are good things until you get too many of them concentrated in one place. You know what happens when you concentrate light? Blindness. We got a lot of blind people in the church because they're shining their lights in each other's eyes. 
And what we need is a few more of those lights in really dark places. Because a light in a dark place is brilliant. Man, I, I went out last night in Jupiter. Did you see Jupiter? It was just like, it's just brilliant. And that's what we are called to be, these stars in the night sky. That we come out in the darkness and we shine and we give light. This is what Christ has called us to be, to be pure reflections of who he is. We don't need to fear the darkness. We need to invade the darkness. We are called to live out our lives in dark places. Verse 8. Heal the sick who are there and tell them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. We go with appetite and we go with power. Everybody say power. God has called you to a ministry that reveals who Christ is. He's called you to be the people who can go and say, you know, I know it's hard to believe, but God's going to do something incredible. You don't have to trust me. You don't have to believe me. You see, miracles were never meant to make believers healthy. I don't know if you know, you're all going to die. Either Jesus is coming back or you're all going to die. And some of you are going to die of diseases. Some of you are going to die of old age. You're all going to die. We, we live in a mortal flesh. So no matter how many times the Lord heals you, you're still going to die. That's, that's, that's how we're built. We're built to live and we're built to die. Healing was never meant so that everybody in the church just stays healthy. Every miracle in the Bible is purposeful. And the purpose is that those who are in darkness understand who Christ is. Do you know the reason we don't see miracles? We're not praying for the right people. Miracles are not meant so that believers in the church can come around the altar and get healed. God does it sometimes because he's gracious and merciful, but that's not the point. The point of a miracle is that unbelievers, those who are far from the Lord, can see and understand who Christ is. That's the point of a miracle. So if you want to see miracles, you just need to start praying for the right kind of people. Stop praying for believers and start praying for atheists and you'll start seeing miracles. Go find some Muslims who need something and start praying for them. We need to be the kind of people we're praying for people who actually need the insight that God reveals himself. Put yourselves in the right position. I mean, it's amazing to me. We have, we've had uh, youth teams come to us, and, and they see miracles. Why? Because God's wanting to reveal himself to lost people. God's wanting to reveal himself to desperate people. God's wanting to show himself to be true. I want to encourage you, start looking for opportunities to show the power of God. You know, many times we don't want to do it because of how we might look if it doesn't work. We, I don't have to worry about that. I was in a village one time, and it's amazing how it just happens at the most inopportune time one time. I started a soccer team. Uh, never played soccer in my life. 
But uh, everybody wanted to play soccer. We ran an English school there, and the villagers in, in the school, they, you know, they, the, the kids in the school were saying, hey, these villages, every year they play soccer, and they want us to come play. And I said, great. So uh, we bought uniforms, and I got to play. And I have at least 100 pounds on them. So I was just the big guy. I just actually played American football in the center and get, you know, red carded every time. But I would just like... You know, like some of these really quick guys would come dribbling through the middle, and I'd knock them down, and they'd come back slower the next time. So that was my job. So I was the, I was the enforcer in the middle of the pitch. So we had just played this village one day, and we're sitting around, and uh, they, we've got some chicken on the stick, and we're eating chicken feet on a stick, you know, just chewing on chicken feet, and we're eating, and we're sitting around talking. And so, so as we always do, we're just talking. We start telling the story, and I start to tell them my story. I was an alcoholic, and, and Jesus saved me, and he set me free, and I'm telling my story. And this guy, he's casually, he's chewing on a chicken foot, and he just casually said, huh, that's interesting. He said, oh, there's a girl like that up the road. I said, what do you mean like that? He said, oh, she's crazy. And I said, what do you mean crazy? He said, oh, she's just, she's just crazy, but uh, yeah, you should go try it on her. See if it works for her. So I said, okay, we'll do it. So I've got these brand new guys. With, I've got about three guys with me. They've been saved about a week. We have our football clothes on, our cleats on, and we go walking up the road and we walk into this house. There's an old man sitting in the house. I said, I heard you have a daughter who's not doing well. He said, yep. I said, uh, do you mind if I pray for her? He said, pray to who? I said, we're servants of Jesus, and we believe Jesus can heal. He said, well, try it everything else. If you want to give it a try, she's in the back room. So uh, I go, and I open the door and stick my head around. And when I did... There's a teenage girl. She's got chains on her arms and legs. She spins around. She spits in my face and starts to curse God. I've never met her before. She's possessed. I mean, really possessed. And so for 30 minutes, we had warfare. We're praying. She's spitting. She's reaching out as far as she can on the chains trying to grab us, and we're just praying. And finally, I come out of the room covered in spit for about 30 minutes, and I told the man, I said, I'm sorry, I wasn't ready for that. <laughs> I thought she was sick or something. I didn't, I didn't know you were talking about that. I said, but, but we'll get ready. You see, the reason these times are so important, again, moments come, are we ready for the moments? You'll notice this. When the disciples encountered a man that they couldn't heal, Jesus said, this kind only comes out by prayer and fasting. Why was Jesus able to cast him out? It's because he was already ready. Too many times we wait for the need, and then we start praying and fasting. We wait for the crisis, and then we seek God. We need to be a people that we are ready. We're ready. The world doesn't always wait for us to get up to speed. We need to be a people that are ready. We seek the Lord. So we went home, and I said, you know, I'm very sorry, but I wasn't ready. So we went back, and I told these three young guys, I said, for three days, we're going to pray, we're going to fast, and after three days, we're coming back. So you better get ready. So they showed up at my house every morning for three days at five in the morning because they're terrified now. <laughs> we got to go face this little girl again. <laughs> And she might kill us. 
And I told him, I said, we're going to unchain her this time, so you better be ready. So now they're terrified. So they're at my house every morning, five in the morning, <laughs> until we fell asleep on the floor. And then we woke up, and we started praying again. We did that for three days. And then we get back in the truck, and we went, and we started praying. And after about 12 hours of praying, she calmed down enough that we were able to get her out of the house, get her in the truck. We took her to a young believer's house. We sat her there, and for 40 days, and 40 nights, there were people sitting around her and praying over her until God set her free on the 40th day. And she's married now, has a family now, and is in the Lord now. God will show his power. God will show his power. But a few things, the reason I tell that story. Number one, don't wait for the tragedy. Get ready now. Wouldn't it be nice to be like Jesus just to walk in and deal with it? To not have to take ourselves to the mechanic to get fixed so that we can actually go and help? We need to be a people that are ready. That we have prayed, we have fasted, we are prepared. I want to challenge you. Set up normal times of prayer and fasting in your life. If you have a day set aside to play golf, set aside a day to pray and fast. Set aside days to seek the Lord. Set aside special weeks to go and spend time with the Lord. We need to be ready when the opportunity comes. And let me tell you, you also need perseverance. If you're going to see miracles, it doesn't always happen on your time frame. Many times we give up before the miracle comes. We need to be a people of perseverance. We don't quit. We don't stop. We continue to seek. We continue to believe until God shows his power. And I believe if there was ever a generation that needed to see the power of God, it is this generation. This generation needs to see the power of God. This generation needs to be in the walk into their schools and to, to tell their friends who are afflicted with gender dysphoria. They need to be able to say, God can set you free. God can set your mind right. God can heal your body. God can change your life. God is able to make all things new. We believe in a God that can do the impossible. We need to be people who go in the power of God. Number nine, verse 10 and 11. But when you enter a town and are not welcome, go into its streets and say, even the dust of your town we wipe from our feet as a warning to you, yet be sure of this, the kingdom of God has come near you. This is so important. Sometimes... You're going to go into a home, and they're not going to receive you. Sometimes there's going to be families that come to your church, and they're just not going to like what's happening, and they're going to choose to leave. Sometimes you're going to be in the city, and it seems like nobody in this city wants me here. How do we react when nothing's going right? And the Bible tells us you've got to go with encouragement. You need to shake the dust off your feet. That family didn't receive me. No problem. I'm going to go to the next family. That school shut the doors and said we can't go in. You got two options. 
You can either sit back and say, oh, the doors are closed, or you can shake the dust off your feet and go to the next school. We have to be in people that continually encourage ourselves in the Lord. If a thousand families reject me, all I'm going to believe in my head is the next family is going to be ready. <laughs> if I go to a thousand homes and nobody lets me in, the only thought in my mind is, man, the next house must have a person of peace. We have to be a people who constantly encourage ourselves in the Lord, that God does have a work for me to do. God knew what he was doing when he brought me here. There is something that's going to happen, but you can't do it if you allow the dust of discouragement to settle on your life. How many of you are old enough to remember uh, Pickpin? Do you remember the old Charlie Brown? And everywhere they went, you know, there's the dust cloud. There's a lot of ministers with dust clouds around their head. It's the dust clouds of board members who've uh, spoken wrong and treated us bad. The dust clouds of Sunday school teachers who are, who are fighting with us. The dust clouds of children's workers. The dust clouds of insurance and lawsuits. Dust clouds of government officials who are trying to make our life more difficult. And if we're not careful, this dust settles and turns into a boulder. It settles and turns into a boulder. You know, if I were to hand you a hundred pound rock, you'd probably say, no, that's too heavy. We, we can't, I can't carry a hundred pound rock around with me. But if I hand you one one pound rock, you think, yeah, I can carry that. And then I hand you another, and I hand you another, and I hand you another until you have a hundred one-pound rocks. How many of you know you got a hundred-pound rock? And that's how it starts. We allow a little bit of discouragement to sit. It doesn't hurt you. You can carry it. But then you allow another discouragement to sit. You allow a failure to sit. You allow a word of pain to sit. And before you know it, you're feeling weighted down and you just don't know why. And there is no one why. It's the hundreds of little whys. You know what I'm saying? You ever been there? And what is the Lord telling us to do? Every time a word of envy is spoken over your life, shake it off. You know, I, I, I have a personal thing I do. My team, all my team knows I do this. I live a life of giving a better excuse for you than you could give for yourself. That's how I live my life. So I get a lot of nasty emails because missionaries are hurting sometimes. And you know, wounded people will wound you. How many of you know that? Wounded people lash out. We have to always distinguish between fact and feeling. You know, sometimes when somebody's feeling hurt, we want to give them the facts, and the facts don't matter. What we have to do is acknowledge their feelings. Hey, you feel like I wasn't there for you. You feel like, maybe that's not true, but that's not going to cure it for me to bring facts up. What I have to do is show empathy with you. So often what I'll do is, I got a zinger the other day. Somebody was upset with me. 
because they didn't feel like I did it, did it right. And you know the first thing I did in my mind? I started wandering in my mind for good excuses. I thought, you know what? I bet their wife's been sick. And they haven't been able to sleep well. Flu season. I'm sure somebody in the family has flu. It's causing a lot of tension over their life. They're okay. They're just dealing with the flu. And then I just pray for them and we move on. Then you may say, you just told yourself a lie. No, I just gave myself a reason not to get upset. (laughs) I gave myself a way to bless them instead of curse them. See, we need to realize a lot of people are dealing with a lot of stuff, and if, and if there's arrows coming out, there's usually a reason that arrows are coming out. So instead of trying to defend yourself, instead of getting defensive, instead of fighting the battle, instead of letting it sin, you just shake it off. Nope, they're okay. They're good people. We're good. It always takes two people to fight. And so I have very few fights in my life because it always takes two people to fight. Now, one person can get hit, but it takes two people to fight. You know how you stop fighting? You shake it off. I, I refuse to receive that. I'm not going to receive it. I shake it off. You spoke a word of bitterness over me, but I'm not going to receive it. I'm just going to speak life back. We're not going there. I just shake it off, and I'm going to move ahead. I'm not going to allow it to sit on me and weigh me down and to burden me down. I'm going to shake it off. How many of you have some words you need to shake off today? Yep, some people have spoken hurtful wounds over your life. You know, I didn't realize it, but, uh, you know, I I grew up in uh, isolation. My uh, mother left when I was a teenager. Just one morning, she just left. I got up, had breakfast, went to school, came home. She was gone. She ran off with my dad's best friend. It was pain. My dad was hurting. He didn't know how to deal with it. So six months later, my dad found somebody else, and he left. And so I was alone. And, uh, and then I'm 20 years old, and I get saved. And I can say God changed my life, but uh, I still was carrying a lot of stuff. And I brought that stuff into my marriage. Because if my wife was a minute late, where are you? Who are you with? I brought it in. I brought stuff in. You, know, you can't trust people. Nobody's there for you. You got to take care of yourself. I, I carried that with me. And then one day I realized, man, I, I'm saved, but I, I'm not set free. How many of you know some people that are saved, but they're not set free? And I had to take some long walks. My mom came to the Lord. I led my mom to the Lord, the first person I led to the Lord after I got saved. But about 15 years after that, I took my mom out for lunch one day. I said, Mom, we need to talk. And uh, we had never talked about it from the day she got saved. From the day I got saved, she got saved. We never talked about it. We talked about it. We got it out, and I shook it off. I offered forgiveness she offered love. I started doing, and, and my life was revolutionized. I started shaking stuff off. And uh, I've got a security to my life now. I, I, don't, I don't, if my wife's late, I don't worry about it anymore. I have no doubts about her, and it never was about her, it's about me. I had to shake stuff off. 
And a lot of times we, we come to Christ and our spirits are renewed, but our minds are still bound with this dust sitting on us. The dust of words people spoke. You're never going to amount to anything. You're never going to do anything. You're, you're never going to be successful. You, you can't do anything there. These words, this dust that sits on our life, and if we are going to become the people God has called us to be, we got to shake it all off. You got to shake it all off. You got to allow the wind of the Spirit to blow through your life that all the dust is bushed out. We need the wind of the Spirit blowing in our lives. And finally, I heard a yawn, so that'll be a finally. I'm going to read verses 17 through 20. So the 72 go out. It said, The 72 returned with joy and said, Lord, even the demons submit to us in your name. He replied, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. I believe in Minnesota, we're going to start to see Satan falling like lightning from heaven. We're going to see the heavens opened. We're going to see the clouds breaking. We're going to see the sun shining in, that God is going to reveal himself here. God is going to reveal himself in the nations of the world. He's, he's going to fall. I have given you authority to trample on snakes and scorpions and to overcome all the power of the enemy. Nothing will harm you. However, do not rejoice that the spirits submit to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. You're going to have to go with perspective. Everybody say perspective. And the perspective we go with is this. I am going I am a servant of the Lord, but what brings value to my life is what He has done in me and who He is, not what He does through me. What makes me valuable is who I am in Christ. You have to keep the perspective. Because there will be moments, there will be months, there will be years when you feel like nothing's happening. Sister Martha talked about last night, just there was a period after death that there was a period of, it seems like nothing is death. It'd be easy to get ground down by that kind of death, by that kind of tragedy. But there has to be a perspective in us that we are children of God. We are accepted by God. We have life in Christ. And no matter how dark it is today, we will continue to rejoice. We will continue to serve. We will continue to live for the glory of God. No matter what's happening around me, I believe that He is in control and He's going to make a way. He's going to make a way. Sometimes He does it in strange ways. I mentioned uh, I got arrested one day I went up into a village, I got lost, and next thing I know I got arrested. And uh, I got locked up in this little metal box. And so the uh, commander was, uh, he got word, they got to send me to the capital. So he takes me off the mountain, takes me to this other jail, and uh, he's getting ready to put me. When they originally caught me, they put me in a metal box and put, me on, put it on the back of a truck and they drove through the mountains for about three hours. And there was only a little slit for a window. And I got so sick. I get car sick. And I'm in the back in this metal box. 
and I got so sick. And so, uh, so they get me there. Now they're getting ready to take me to the, to the other jail. And I walk outside, and there's the truck. And the officer said, got his gun out. He said, get in the truck. And I looked at it, and I just broke down. Like, it's funny where you find your limits sometimes. But I just hit the wall. And I just took a deep breath. I said, I'm not going to do it. You can't make me. You can kill me, but I'm not getting back in that truck. I'm not going to do it. So he levels his gun, and I level my fist. I'm not going to do it. And when I did that, I'm standing there. Now we got a face-off. He's got his gun on me, and I've got my fist up. I said, I'm not getting in. You can kill me, but I'm not getting in. And uh, out of the corner of my eye, I see uh, this young guy. He's only been saved a few months. And he's with me. He's arrested with me. They didn't keep him in the box with me, but he still was arrested. And I saw him, and uh, I took another deep breath, and I dropped my hands, and I looked at him, and I said, I'm sorry. It's not the way that Jesus tells us to act. It's not the way we live. We're people of peace. So uh, I dropped my hands, and I looked at the guard, and I said, forgive me. I shouldn't have acted like that. I'm ready to go. So he puts me in the back. And then he takes a friend. He said, okay, come get in the truck with us. And then he said, no, I won't do it. I won't get in the truck with you. If he's in the back, I'm in the back with him. So now he throws a friend in the back with me. So now we're in the back of the truck. And they go to the, get some gas. They don't have any gas. We're going to have to go about 10 hours through the mountains. So we drive about five minutes to the gas station. And uh, it has one of these hand crank 55-gallon drums. And so he starts hand cranking. So it's going to take a while. And they're hand cranking. So now the fumes are filling in too. So now it's really bad. And we're sitting in the back of this truck. And I just pray. And I said, let's pray before we start. I said, I, I'm not going to have my senses after long. I'm going to get sick. So let's pray. And we said, Lord, we commit ourselves to you. Our lives are for you. Our lives are for your glory. No matter what happens, just help us to be faithful witnesses to you. No matter what happens at the end of this day. And as we're sitting back there praying, all of a sudden, uh, the driver starts to fight with the guard. And he said, I don't like this truck. I don't like driving this truck. And the guard said, it doesn't matter if you like it. It's your job. You have to drive the truck. He said, no, I don't have to drive this truck. I'm not going to drive the truck. And they're like, literally, they're about to come to blows. So finally, they're shouting, and they get in the truck. And next thing I know, we're back at the jail. And the guard pulls us out and said, get out of there. And so he pulls us out. So now we don't know what's happening. They're shouting at each other. And then he comes around with a limousine. There's a Chinese limousine. And the driver comes out with this Chinese limousine, said, I don't want to drive that truck. I'm driving this. So finally the guard said, okay. So next thing I know, I'm sitting in a limousine <laughs> with a bottle of water. <laughs> yeah. I don't know why that moment. I don't know, you know, like, you know, sometimes, you know, like, Miracles sometimes don't make sense. You know, when you hear Sister Tennyson's story, like, kids died. There were miracles, but people died. In this world, you will face tribulation. 
that, that's, the, that's the way it is. Until the kingdom of God is fully revealed. But in the middle of the tragedy, God knows our limit. God knows what we can take. And God shows up in those moments. God shows up in those moments. And let me tell you, if your life is built around being successful, of having a certain title, of of doing something, let me tell you, those moments are going to break you. But if you can keep your eyes fixed on Jesus and just keep looking to him in the middle of your weakness, he's going to show up. About three years later, the young man that was with me that day, he comes to see me. And he said, uh, yeah, my family's facing hard times. He went back and led his father, his brothers, his mom, his whole family came to the Lord. And so he said, yeah, my family's facing a hard time. He said, the communist officials came to my family, said, if you don't renounce Jesus, we're going to take your fields. My dad said, no matter what you do, I won't renounce Jesus. And they took his fields. So he said, my father had to go and do road work and we had to do whatever we could to survive. Then recently, they came and said, if you don't renounce Jesus, we're going to take your house. He said, and so they took our house, and we just kept serving. He said, and then uh, yesterday, they showed up at the house and said, if you don't renounce Jesus, you're going to jail. He said, and so, uh, so I just want you to pray, he said, because they took my father to jail yesterday. I mean, I'm broken. I led this man to Christ. You, you, you better believe what you're preaching when the people you're preaching to are going to prison. You better believe it's worth it. So I, I'm feeling a sense of responsibility. And I looked at him, I was just broken. I said, man, I'm so sorry. I can't imagine what you're feeling right now. And when I said that, he looked at me with a puzzled look, he said, no, no, no. He said, I- I'm not telling you that to feel sorry for us. He said, uh, I just came to thank you. He said, when I was with you, I saw you suffer. I saw the Lord was with you. And I told my dad, Dad, God's going to be with us. I saw it happen. God's going to be with us. God's going to make a way. And through that family now, they've planted churches in 50 villages. And they just keep serving. They just keep going. They just keep moving. You have to have a perspective. I am a servant of Jesus Christ. And as a servant, he has a right to use me however he wants to use me. In a town of 500 or in a metropolis of a million, sitting in a jail or sitting in a mansion. And it's not up to me to look to another servant and say, Lord, what about him? I've just got to keep my eyes on Jesus. I've got to keep my eyes on Jesus. I serve him because of who he is, not because of what he does. He is my king He is my Lord. He is my master. We keep that perspective.